I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Jordan Harper, the Edgar Award-winning author of She Rides Shotgun and Love and Other Wounds. He has been an ad man, a rock critic, and works as a writer and producer for television. He was born and raised in Missouri and now lives in Los Angeles. His new novel, Everybody Knows, is the focus of our talk today. On the show, we talked about how he found his way to crime fiction, the Los Angeles setting for the book, and writing the first chapter at the Chateau Marmont. Beginnings and endings, and so much more. The interview was done on Zoom on Sunday, February 26, 2023, for Sisters in Crime, Orange County. If you'd prefer watching, visit the YouTube channel. Um, Barbara DeMarco Barrett is one, or Sisters in Crime, Orange County is the other. And before we bring them on, a reminder about Patreon. If you've been listening for a while and have found these interviews useful, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Become a supporter. Contributing any amount at all helps us continue doing what we're doing. We appreciate every penny and we thank you, our loyal listeners and patrons. Thank you so much. Now for Jordan Harper. Jordan, so good to have you here. Will you you give a short synopsis of Everybody Knows? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, Everybody Knows is a modern take on the uh, L.A. noir, the Hollywood noir. It's uh, about a, a woman named May Pruitt, and she's what's called a black bag PR person, which means she doesn't get the good news out. She keeps the bad news in. And May is very good at her job and she knows that she's working for bad people and doing things that aren't great, but she's very good at it and she doesn't really see a lot of other choices in her life. Uh, And then she uh, is approached by one of her bosses at the firm who suggests to her that he has a a secret that uh, is worth a lot of money and maybe they shouldn't handle this with a firm, maybe they should go out and make a little money for themselves and if she likes that idea, she should meet him tomorrow at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And uh, she thinks about it. And she decides she's going to find out what the secret is. She's going to make the play. And then she is driving uh, down Sunset Boulevard towards the Beverly Hills Hotel. And there's a kind of traffic uh, that can be anywhere, but it's very common in L.A. where it's so bad that the worst part of you thinks, well, I, I hope somebody is dead at the end of this traffic just to make it all worthwhile. And May has <laughs> that thought. And and it gets even worse because there's a, a police helicopter up ahead. And you just know when you see that circling police helicopter ahead of you in traffic that you're in for no good. So she she's running late and she she wants her boss to know she's in on this plan. So she parks her car and she just starts takes off her shoes and starts running down the sidewalk towards the Beverly Hills Hotel. And when she gets to the end of it, uh, she finds out there is somebody dead. And it's her boss, Dan, and he's been killed in an apparent carjacking. But May, knowing he died holding some big secret, doesn't think uh, that she's going to buy the official explanation. She decides to investigate. And so what that does is it takes her 
up and down Los Angeles from homeless camps that are being firebombed by somebody to billionaires houses in the Chateau Marmont. And, uh, you know, I just, it, and it really kind of spirals into this big dark secret about, um, you know, just how, how bad can things get and just what, how much is she willing to put up with uh, and, and, and what she can learn as, as she kind of dives deeper into the muck that she's already been swimming in. So. That's great. So apropos of Pat Bresky's talk before you came on about the locations in LA where noir movies have been shot, how did you choose locations for exteriors as well as interiors in the in the book? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a product I've I've now lived in Los Angeles for 14 or 15 years and uh a lot of the places in this book are are places I've been or places that I've worked at um May's apartment is an apartment I used to live in on 6th Street down by LACMA. Uh, the Chateau, I literally checked into the Chateau Marmont to write the first chapter because I wanted to get the details right uh, to the extent that even the celebrities named in the book are celebrities I saw in the place that I saw them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really just me taking my Los Angeles and, 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 and putting as much of it as possible into the book that goes for, even if I don't name the restaurants, they're all real restaurants that I know and love. I'm a big Los Angeles food uh, fan. So I just really went for portraying Los Angeles as it's happening right now. So as you were writing, would you go back to these places, even though you were familiar with them? Well, for sure. I mean, in a lot of cases, I mean, this is the great thing about modern technology is um, not during the first draft, but during, you know, revisions, I can absolutely take my laptop and just even just to go park on on a street and look around and see what's happening. And, um, you know, I, I'm not doing reportage. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a novel writer. I make a lot of things up, obviously, but even things like, you know, the peculiarities of what's being spray painted on walls and things like mm -hmm. that is something that if if you go to the places and you see them, you can kind of map out how Los Angeles is is a, a million different places at once and try and capture the unique tones. I always, every chapter labels every neighborhood that it takes place in because I just think that adds to just like the, the absolute wonder of Los Angeles. And you also, you went to uh, Chateau Marmont to write um, a rough draft of the first chapter. Is that true? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what we did. Uh, my, my partner, Megan and I uh, checked into one of the little cottages, which is where the action of the first chapter takes place. And we went to the bar to look around and, and we saw Gary Oldman. And that's why Gary Oldman's mentioned in the first chapter, uh, Dakota Johnson and Walton Goggins, who I've worked with before was there and it was made me feel very Hollywood for just a brief second instead of a fly on the wall. But yeah, no, I, I tried to go as, as many places as I could um, and, and again, just relying on my my own, this is my Los Angeles. And now, um, not to get too far ahead, but now that I'm writing a, a second book in this world, I'm having problems because I put so much of my Los Angeles into the first book that I have to go out and find new places and find places I haven't, I had, didn't write about in this one, so that it doesn't feel uh, repetitive. Did you know there was going to be a second book? I mean, yes, yeah, I absolutely mm -hmm. knew there was going to be a second book and it, and it's, I'm doing this a lot of, you know, this is, is going to be, um, it's not going to be the same protagonist. It's not a, a serious character. May, it, it, she might appear in the second novel, but she's not going to be the protagonist. I'm more doing the, uh, the same universe and the same villains and, and storylines will carry over, but in a way that I definitely want every book to be readable on its own, um, for reasons that we can, we can talk about and get to, uh, 
Uh, uh, James Elroy is a big inspiration for me, and and particularly for this novel, uh, I think James Elroy's stamp is, is on it a lot. But um, uh, one of the ways that I, that I'm emulating him is in the the LA Quartet. That there is like a you know Dudley Smith kind of weaves his way through that. But you can read all of those books individually and not really miss anything at all. And and that's sort of what I'm going for with this series. Okay, so back to this book. Um... The world of PR. How did you choose that? Um, you know, it's a lot of the things that I've been interested in for a long time are the ways that violence are, is changing and the way that while the world isn't the way it was in like the 40s or 50s, that there's just as much violence, just as much intrigue. It's just that those things are changing and we're changing the shape of things. And the way that news is taken in now, and has always been, but particularly now, has always been fascinating to me. What gets covered, what doesn't. I mean, there's the politically charged phrase fake news, but this is just about the how much power certain people have to shape narratives or stories and the, the kind of the lies that we all agree upon. And there's a line in the book that um, more or less says that um, you can tell a lie and nobody has to believe it. But if everybody acts like they believe it, that's good enough. And you know, an example for that would be when a star or an actress or an actor checks into a rehab and they say they're going in for exhaustion. <laughs> and everybody in the world reads that and goes, no, 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 they have a drug problem, we all know that. Um, but nobody's gonna say that out loud, nobody's gonna put it in print. And so it serves its function. They go rest for, for relaxation and then they're allowed to come back and nobody makes a big deal out of it. And I'm, so I'm fascinated with that. And I, particularly, you know, the, uh, there's a, you know, if there's like a catchphrase that, that, that has become kind of the slogan of the book, it's something that May says a lot, which is nobody talks, but everybody whispers, <laughs> which means that a lot of these things that come out in the press are things that in Hollywood have been known for years and years. And I've always been interested in, in what makes things newsworthy and when, and I think the when is really important. So I've always been interested in it and particularly in the last couple of years. Um, and then, you know, uh, as I was preparing to write this book, I actually did sit down with a black bag PR person. Um, they're more commonly called crisis managers. And uh, I talked to this person, and I promised them, you know, that I would never say their name. Uh, but this was a person who had worked for a very, very bad man whose name we all know. And um, they said things to me that were so cynical and dark, I could not put them in the book. I think I wrote a pretty cynical book, but um, there were a few <laughs> things I, I, I couldn't get in. But one thing that they said to me that is in the book is they said, I'm not saying the truth isn't important. It just doesn't matter. Um which to me is the key to the whole thing. It's uh, to have that worldview that, yeah, okay, there is a truth and it's out there, but immaterial, immaterial, let's keep going, let's keep going. Um, so that that's really where I got the interest in it from. It's just, uh, it, it plays such a huge role in our lives. And, and we're always talking about the news, or again, we're throwing out like accusations of fake news, but we're not saying what that means or how news is built or, you know, any of it. So, yeah. Hmm. You mentioned locations again, and I was thinking about, um, you know, you use a lot of actual places and how, how, what am I trying to ask you? Like, is there something you have to deal with or have your book vetted to make sure you can have those locations? I mean, could someone get mad at you for 
for setting a scene in a particular hotel or restaurant? Well, I mean, I wasn't legally vetted uh, for that. You know, <laughs> typically you can just name places. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious if the Chateau Marmont in specific uh, knows about what I wrote or if they if they would be angry about it, but I haven't been contacted by them. And, and by the way, it's a great hotel. And if you can have a reason to check in, check in. It's, it's great. Um, and, and, you know, I am writing a, a pulpy version of the world where, you know, there's a joke about, oh, the Chateau is normally good about hiding bodies, but it's in <laughs> reference to a, a concrete Buddha that has been knocked over, right. uh, which, again, actually happened while I was there in the Chateau Marmont. There's this beautiful, lovely lagoon, and it, it's so peaceful and quiet. But while I was there, there was a, a Buddha that had been knocked off the side of the lagoon, and, and his head was like staring up at the sky. And so, you know, these were all true things, and there's just like a little cynical overlay over it so um no and and you know as far as people go which is not what you asked but you know I, I fictionalize everything even if it's based on um rumors or myths or true stories that I've been told or or actual news stories it's all very fictionalized the places aren't but most of the places that I don't name the chateau is too famous to try and fictionalize everybody would know what I was talking about so I went ahead and named it I love how you describe sort of the entrance, how the, the entrance is so hidden. It's like they don't want anybody to find their way in, right? Well, what's amazing, there's a, there's a door that you can go up. There's a little winding road. The chateau is mm -hmm. right up against the Hollywood Hills. And there's a, there's a winding road where you can go in Valet Park and walk into the hotel. Uh, but the entrance that May enters at the beginning of the book is, um, and it's right there on side. It's, it's literally not hidden it's just people don't notice it it's a green cloth door and a white brick wall and it's locked but it's made out of cloth so if somebody wanted to you could slash it and go marauding among the rich and famous and as may thinks in the book nobody ever does it's just it's there's something some invisible wall it's not the green cloth that's keeping people out of the <laughs> grotto it's it's just this these invisible walls which again is another one of those things that I'm fascinated with is, is all of the protections to the rich and the powerful that exist beyond just guns. I mean, guns and violence are part of it, but there are lawyers and PR people and just these invisible walls that people don't walk through. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, you mentioned beginnings and I wanted to ask you about the beginning because, um, you know, May is needing to deal with one of her clients' crises, current crises. And I'm curious how, much attention you paid to that first chapter you know like was it I mean you this isn't your first book and so I'm wondering if you know it's the first book everybody's concerned with the first page the first line the first chapter or if you're always concerned with that and you know do you worry about did you worry about your first chapter as you were writing it or did you say you know I'm going to write the draft of the book and I'll go back to the beginning and I'll you know, when I know what I have, then I'll work on the first chapter because it was so perfect. I mean, it was a perfect introduction into oh, this story. Thank you. To, to answer like the broadest way possible, I am a, I'm a writer who never takes his reader for granted. I'm never somebody who's going to be, well, I'm going to be comfortable starting off slowly because the reader will catch up. I, I'm a 21st century boy here. I am trying to compete with uh, the computers and the movies and the TV screens and the phones and, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to make it dumb, but I think it does mean that it's a good idea to catch people's attention on page one. And there's a lot of different ways to do that, including, like you said, the first sentence, the first paragraph, the first page, and just trying to get people to lean forward is my main concern. Um, 
And so I am also somebody who really, really rewrites the first chapter a lot on all my books. Um, not just for that reason, but also that's where I'm kind of learning the voice. I'm learning what I'm trying to do with this book. And it's the closer you can get to having that nailed down throughout the first draft, the better off you'll be in revision. So, you know, a lot of people just plow ahead. Um, and I kind of do a mixture of both. I try and get a rough, rough draft done, but I also am always kind of tinkering and being aware of what the first, uh, what the first page is going to be. Uh, and the last thing I'll say about that is, um, this was not supposed to be the first chapter. I had a, a, a different ending in mind that I, uh, that when I started writing the book, that I had a, a, a first chapter that I really, really liked. But the, the problem was uh, that without the ending, uh, it didn't work, didn't make mm -hmm. any sense. Mm -hmm. And so I had to cut it. And um, I still have it. And I, if I can find a way to use it, because it's a, something written I've never seen before. So um, I would really like to to get into something in some other form, but it, it was all contingent on an ending that didn't work. So uh, this became the first chapter. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned the ending because the ending and the beginning, the first line of the the first chapter and the last line of the last chapter, um, both contain the word burn mm -hmm. and with such a nice um, echo. And I wondered if that was by design. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, fire appears in my novels very often. I, I, and my short stories, there's something about fire as a symbol or as a, as a narrative event that I find really uh, fascinating and particularly living in Los Angeles where this year we skipped most of the burning, um, you know, through this, this last fire season, but you know, the last couple of years, just where LA was catching on fire and, and you would wipe the ash off your car in the morning and, and, uh, so I've always been fascinated with that, but yeah, I, I also wanted to get across, and this is important, and I think it's a noir idea that things can change in the micro, but they don't change in in the macro. And the fact that LA is still a place that's ready to burn, as opposed to a place that does burn down and is is conquered or finished by the end of the novel, was really important to me to say that this is just a thing that is happening, uh, but the city is still there behind it, and it's still begging to be to burn. So. Mm -hmm. So then the ending, like how much work are you doing on the ending? I mean, it's, do you pay as much attention to the ending as you pay to the beginning of just getting it right and tinkering and tweaking and shining, polishing? I mean, like, as I mentioned before, I, I, I had a different ending in mind that didn't work. So I did have to retool this one. And I, I love the ending the way it is now. The mm -hmm. first ending uh, I always knew it was going to be a stretch and and was a good deal darker than the one that is now. And, and I just got to the end of it and it just wasn't right. It just, I mean, I, it just didn't work. And so I had to retool this one on the fly. So I don't think I rewrote this as many times as I might've, if I hadn't done other versions of it. Uh, but uh, no, I really do think that to me, the beginning is the most important thing. That first chapter it's the most important thing because we'll never know as an author, you'll never know how many people pick up a book and put it back down and never finish it. Um, but if they're going to get past that first chapter and keep reading, you've got a really good shot at keeping them. So to me, that's just very important. Yeah. I mean, I'll give up a book. I do it all the time after the first chapter. It's like, why go on? You know, yeah. I mean, why go on? There's so many others. Um, talk about, the two point of view characters, you have May and then you have Chris. At what point did you decide there were gonna be two point of view characters? 
Very early on. Um, every novel, I, so I've written three novels, two of which have been published in America. I, she Writes Shotgun was my first novel. And then I have a, a novel called The Last King of California that is only out in the UK for now, maybe published in America later. Hmm. And uh, and then I have Everybody Knows. And in all three of those, I have a male and a female point of view character. Uh, and then She Writes Shotgun and Everybody Knows. It's the female character who's the lead. In Last King of California, it's the male character that's the lead. But I've always in all of my books so far, switch back and forth. And I really like that. And I like having both of those perspectives in my books. And um, the one I'm writing now has two male characters and a female character as the leads. Um, and so I, I always knew I was going to have at least two point of view characters. And I also kind of knew that I wanted Chris to have an ex who was a former dirty cop. And, and that pairing came to me very early in planning this. And I wanted to write about policing and police and the bad sides of that. And Chris was a great way into that. And I knew that I wanted to try and do uh, an, a more intricate structure where you're bouncing back and forth and they're both on separate tracks, but you can see that they're eventually gonna come together, which is a, a fun challenge. And again, I was really trying to do a kind of a bigger uh, LA epic noir in the you know, the classic style that there is a, a tradition of those big LA noirs going, you know, all the way back to, to Chandler, obviously, but like, um, and Elroy and Chinatown and all the other ones we, we could name. Um, and so I always, you know, I wanted to have this have a lot of back and forth and a lot of, um, and I also wanted to have some romance and I wanted it to be like, not your straight ahead love story, but a love story between two battered and bruised people who, um, are so dishonest in their, their everyday life that when they meet somebody that they can't lie to, it's both really invigorating and also terrifying because they both know secretly that if they have to stop lying to themselves, they're not going to be able to keep living the lives that they live right now. And, and that was a really big part of the book for me. So, Are you an outliner? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm a hundred percent outliner. I did start, I, I mean, I've written a lot of short fiction before I started in television, but I got a lot of training for writing in television and television is outlining. And I don't think you can write the kind of books that like everybody knows is without outlining. I mean, I know some people claim that they do it, but um, I think if you're going to really have that back and forth, that intricate story building on two, you know, intersecting uh, storylines, if you're not outlining I don't know how you're doing it, but it's also for me just a, 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 I like to be very creative in the outlining process and then have something that is solid and fixed so that then I can be very creative on the dialogue and character and prose level and not worry about what happens next because I already know. So what does your outline look like? I mean, is it on paper? Is it on the computer? Um, um, I don't think this is what this is. No, this isn't an outline, but um, I, I start with cards. Mm -hmm. And uh, I start with cards. And then uh, this time for everybody knows I actually did something I'd never done before. Like I said, I worked in, I work in television and in television writers rooms, you have something called a writer's room assistant who sits there, take, take notes while the writers talk. And that way you don't have to remember everything. And, and, um, and so I asked, I was coming off of a show that was ending and I really liked Andrew Bain, who's thanked at the end of the novel. He was the writer's room assistant on this show. And I was like, Hey, if you've got a week, after the end of the show that you don't have anything to do, come work with me for a week. And he sat there and I took through my cards and I explained the novel to him and he typed up like a, a beat sheet was what we would call that in television, which is somewhere between just the cards and an outline. 
And the other thing he helped me build, which I, you know, I, I didn't want his ideas. I just wanted him to help me organize my thoughts. And I think if you're writing a mystery, if people don't do this, I don't know how they write mysteries is uh, I have the outline of the way the story is told from the point of view of the reader. And then I have a separate document that is the crime that the, that the heroes are going to uncover as it happened chronologically, just like if you were telling the end of the book where somebody explains the entire mystery. And I think it's really, really valuable to have that document before you really start writing your book, because then you can you can kind of drop little hints and clues all throughout, and you always know what you're talking about because you have this like kind of master document of the secret. So yeah, I outline heavily. How much time do you spend on that before you start writing? And is it like, a, is it a, I don't know, an ongoing process? I mean, will you tweak the outline as you write because you go, well, that's not working or I need to do this or how does that go? Um, yeah, I, well, you know, I, I'm, I don't treat it as ironclad, as I said, like I changed the ending at, at, mm -hmm. at this book, but that was in the rough draft section, but like I, because of television and I was, I was on a show called the mentalist for six years where I helped, uh, break 120 episodes of the mentalist. I wrote 14 of them. So I've got a pretty good mechanical sense of story from doing that. I always say, I basically got paid to go to grad school for mystery writing, uh, in that job. And, so I have learned and I learned to trust myself that with, you know, uh, caveats that if I can break a story and it feels right to me, it's going to be pretty close. Uh, it's pretty much going to be that. And I also write my first drafts are unreadably bad um, vomit drafts, however you want to put it. Um, and I've come to realize they're basically just a novel length outline. Um, I might keep some of the, but I'll literally have lines of dialogue like, and I'm going to make a joke here. <laughs> and like, and I, I cause I, I just want to have as much nailed down before I really kind of start, um, I don't know, playing lead guitar or however you want to put it. But, um, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in preparation. And so how long it takes is the answer is months, um, uh, one or two months anyway, to, to, from writing down the first cards to like, okay, I guess I can start drafting. I'm never going to be a novel a year guy ever. So then how long does the, did the book take? Everybody knows took probably a year and a half mm -hmm. to write from conception to like giving it a, a, a first draft to like people to read, which is not the same as it being done and, and probably two years total. Um, I mean, I wrote it during the pandemic. It was like the, um, it was mostly done during like the real lockdown era when, when we weren't leaving the house and, and I got a lot of it done then. But I think, um, hopefully the next one will be, I, I wanted to come out at least within two years of everybody knows coming out. I'd like to get on a little bit more regular schedule. And I think I needed to, my previous work was mostly set in the world of like white trash. I'm from the Ozarks originally. So a lot of my earlier work takes place with like poor white criminals kind of hard scrabble through the world. And I, I was having a hard time doing that. And I came to realize, well, I've been working in Hollywood now for 15 years, my connection Mm -hmm. to like um you know my my ill-spent youth in the Ozarks is is pretty far away now so I needed to find this new shift and once I had the idea for everybody knows I had like a real feeling that I had found kind of this uh lane for me to run in for a little while so I, hopefully I'll, I'll keep going at a clip for a little while now was there a moment when this book occurred to you when you knew that you know 
this is something, I mean, I don't know how ideas come and go for you, but, you know, I imagine like all writers, you have a ton of them and, and then something, you know, clicks. And do you remember when everybody knows clicked? Well, I, I don't have one moment, but I have a couple, you know, okay. I, I think I had mentioned Elroy earlier. And the reason why he's such a big deal for this is I got a chance to turn James Elroy's LA Confidential into a TV show. And I was able to take it out and pitch it. We actually shot a pilot, actually, if I can do this real quick, if you see that up there, that is a copy of Hush Hush Magazine uh, with Walton Goggins on the on the cover of it. That, that was the prop from the pilot that we shot. Walton Goggins played Jack Vincennes, the Kevin Spacey role. Um, and we took it all the way to shooting the pilot and then it didn't become a TV show. So I had all of this kind of epic James Elroy energy in me that I wanted to use. And I, and that the first big breakthrough was LA, big LA noir set right now, because the, the a, a lot of LA noir looks backwards. Uh, mm. And I was, and uh, I was determined to try and write about this moment. Um, and so I had that idea was, was real beginning of it. And then I started putting it together and then I was on another TV show for a few months. And when that ended, I was, like I said, I worked with Andrew before that. I remember taking another writer out to the coffee and just saying, I have this idea and, and like kind of pitching it to the, to her. And she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like write that, write that. And I was like, okay. And it, it's the most confident about a book I've ever been while I was writing it. Um, how'd you get into crime fiction? Um, you know, the, the the really long answer starts in 1932 with the Young Brothers Massacre, which was a shootout in my hometown where one of the victims was my great grand uncle, who was a police officer uh, and was killed in this big gunfight. And um, that was like a family legend. And I was given a book about it and uh, that was written in the 30s. It was very pulpy and violent. And I read it when I was way too young. And uh, you know, it was given to me by my grandfather, who was a prison guard who made knives in his spare time and gave me chewing tobacco at a rodeo when I was seven. And it, all of this stuff. And he would tell me about Bonnie and Clyde came through his hometown when he was a kid and kidnapped the local sheriff and uh, a lot of stories like that. And and so there was always that kind of Jesse James, Bonnie and Clyde energy that I found so appealing as, as someone from the Ozarks. And then, you know, from there, Crime fiction itself, I discovered through movies and then specifically making the jump in the 90s as a young person uh, between the movie The Grifters to Jim Thompson and the movie LA Confidential to Elroy. And those were like the two big jump off points for me. And, you know, so I'm much more conversant in neo-noir than, than original noir. I, I've watched a lot of it and I love it. But that was like, that's what got me into, into crime films. And then through that kind of discovered, through those two main branches kind of spread out and, and, and got really into it. But I've always just, um, it's always been my, my favorite kind of writing to do. And I, you know, I was a rock critic and a journalist in my twenties, but um, other than, than that, which I wasn't great at, I've always just wanted to tell crime stories. I don't know there's just that feeling of breaking out of, you know, we all kind of live in wiffle balls um and and breaking out of our wiffle balls and fiction and, and exploring life and death and good and evil and the badness inside us and that kind of safe space of fiction just appeals to me and that's where I think you can tell amazing stories about what it means to be a human being and tell it in a really exciting way that that, that people enjoy. Hmm. Were you a writer as a kid? 
I was one of those people who I was dictating stories to my mom for her to write down before I could write. I would draw pictures of monsters fighting and then she would tell me, you know, I would, she would write them down. But I wrote like, um, I wrote like spy stories and, and even crime stories when I was a young kid. And, uh, you know, I, I had a, a science, like a secret agent character that I, I gave him the toughest name that I had ever heard, which I guess I'd heard from my mom because his name was Max Factor. And uh, I, you know, so yeah, I've always, I've always wanted to be a writer in one way or another, you know, in my high school years, I more wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson than I wanted to be a fiction writer, but um, kind of after college and, and my experience as being a music writer, I, I kind of headed back towards fiction. Hmm. So, well, your fiction, it's so visceral and sensory. I mean, it's loaded with um, scene, right? I mean, you, you're writing so much in scene and I imagine that comes from TV writing, does it? Or is that just how you've always kind of approached your writing where, yeah. No, I mean, I, I know what you, you mean and that I do when I read my short stories that I wrote before I was a TV writer, I think maybe they weren't quite so scene-based and there was a little bit more of a sense of flow. And in fact, sometimes I try and kind of push myself to get back to that. But mm-hmm. I will say after 15 years of TV writing, the the sequential story is, is the thing I'm most comfortable with and with scenes with beginnings and middles and ends. Um, so yeah, I do think, you know, I think also people who read my scripts can tell I'm a novelist because I put a little bit more writing into mm-hmm. my scripts than other people do. And and so I think both of them have kind of played off e- each other and uh, kind of helped me birth my own, I hope, unique style. What about your dialogue? Because of course that's strong too. Do you read aloud? Do you, do you sit in different chairs and do the characters or? No, I don't. I don't read aloud. And, and I, what I do is I do a, uh, when I'm rewriting after I've done like three or four bigger drafts, I start doing targeted drafts. And so I will do a May draft and I'll do a Chris draft and then I'll get even down to minor characters and I'll just go through word search the character's name and go through only thinking about that one character. And that to me really helps um, uh, kind of make sure everyone seems unique. I don't know what happened. You uh, are small, but can you hear me? Got small, so I'm gonna try to make you big again. (laughs) So, what about minor characters? What about side characters? What role do they play in terms of story? In terms of your, you know, your two main characters. Well, I, you know, I always try and and assign a very strong point of view to minor characters. Um, Also, I just have to. It's the picture that got small, not me. I just right. want to say. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, but uh, no, I, I so uh, you know, characters are great for for pressing against our main characters and, uh, and and kind of forcing them to to reveal their character by giving every minor character a strong point of view, different speech patterns, a different like place they're coming from, and something that they want. Um, and you know, some characters are flat and they don't change over the course of a book and that's fine, but I always want to make sure you remember them. I always try, I do, I, I consider myself as coming from the pulp tradition. Uh, and to me, that means that kind of singing at a higher register, a louder volume. And so I like to make kind of bold choices in dialogue. I, I don't try to go for realism specifically. I was, to me, realism is a tool. It's not a goal. Um, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to have a good time here. I'm trying to create uh, a a world that is bigger and louder and more electric neon than the one we live in. And, and dialogue is also a great way of 
of doing that because I and I like to have people you know voice ideas I've had and maybe if they're ideas I'm not totally proud of you put them in the voice of a person that people don't like and and that's a great way to again to me fiction is a safe way to explore all sorts of things and and characters minor characters can be a great way of doing that what do you do when you hit a wall or do you never hit a wall oh I hit walls all the time (laughs) I um no, I'm I'm somebody who is slow. I'm somebody who um, kind of spins my wheels. But the main thing that I've done in the last couple of years is to stop stressing about it. I'm not Stephen King. I'm not uh, Michael Connelly. I, I got lucky a little while ago and uh, got to do a Q&A with, with Michael Connelly because uh, the, the questioner had dropped out and they needed somebody to fill in. So it was me. And I was like, do you ever get writer's block? And he was like, well, right at the beginning of the pandemic, because I write in, in real time, I, I didn't know what to do. So I didn't write for like six weeks. I was like, that's it, your entire career, six weeks of writer's block. And he was, yep. I was like, that is a rude answer. Um, <laughs> because I get it a lot. But I, what I've learned is like, I, I'm not, if you Google how many books has Stephen King written, the answer at the top will pop and it'll say around 80 like google doesn't know how many books and i'm not that person i'm not going to be that person i'm i'm aiming for like 10 to 12 10 to 12 books lifetime i think that's pretty solid um so like to be honest like between everybody pardon um somebody's unmuted oh no worries um i lost my train i thought though um you said 10 to 12 books in a lifetime. That sounds pretty good. Oh, yeah. So so I haven't, um, I have, everybody knows it came out January 10th. And then I also started a new TV job in that time period. So I haven't written on my new novel in two months now. And I'm okay with that. Like I would like, I'm starting to get the urge to go back to it. But like, I'm doing this for me at the end of the day. I'm not, I'm trying very hard not to subscribe to like the grind mentality um so if if my thing is uh if you don't feel like writing don't write like it's okay like we're all going to be forgotten i mean a great exercise in humility is to open up the bestseller list from like 1972 and you'll look at that list and maybe there'll be somebody that you recognize in that list but like 99 percent of them you'll have no idea who they were you won't be able to find their books in a bookstore. And that's the fate of like best-selling authors after a couple of decades. Right. And you can get depressed by that, or you can just be set free by it and go, great. So we're just doing this. We're just, right. this is just a good, fun thing to do. And maybe somebody will find the books or maybe it'll leave a, a, an imprint, but um, it's nothing to beat yourself up about. And so mm-hmm. that was a big problem I used to have was beating myself up, which only just makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so the positive answer I will give you <laughs> is... Uh, I refill my tank. I I am a big believer in, I both reread constantly um, the books that are really important to me. And I also try and put new things in my head, but I, I will make concerted efforts of what am I trying to do? What is, what is like that or what is likely to inspire me to do that? And then trying very hard to put that stuff in my brain. Mm. Well, you mentioned James Elroy. Who else do you read and reread? Um, Megan Abbott. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan Abbott is, I think, probably the the best crime writer working right now. Um, I I love the way that she kind of mixes world and character into this like very dreamlike feeling that I just 
I always say like the goal for me, why I want, what I want when somebody reads a book is basically to fall face forward into it and dive into it. Mm-hmm. And nobody to me is, is better than that than, than Megan Abbott. Um, you know, uh, David Peace, he is a, uh, a British writer who now lives in Japan and I, he's not nearly as popular as some other people, but um, he is like a dark and experimental noir writer who writes, I mean, the darkest noir you can imagine but um his language is beautiful and i really love to read him and then um cormac mccarthy is is a big influence for me even though i try not to write like him because anybody who tries to write like him usually comes off as like a very like sophomoric um <laughs> uh imitation but just you know the themes that he has and his willingness to write about big ideas in the guise of, of what can be considered genre novels um, those are like, those are the really big ones for me. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, modern writers who I love. S.A. Cosby, Sean is a really good friend of mine. And uh, by the way, All the Sinners Bleed, his new book comes out this year. It's his best book. It's going to be huge. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, people like that who I, who I really like. But, you know, the people I come back to, it's Elroy, it's Abbott, it's Peace, it's Cormac McCarthy, uh, Jim Thompson, um, those, those are the really big ones for me. If anybody has questions out there, put them in the chat and uh, we'll get to them. But I, and I do see one from Nadja and she is asking, my question is, is LA as terribly tawdry as the novel might have one think? I mean, no, no, but <laughs> yes. Like, um, like I said, I, 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 I do try and write in a pulpy way and an exaggerated way, but Basically, it's just what I do is I take I've taken 14 years of crazy things and jam them into a book. So a lot of the stuff that happens in that book has really happened. If not to me, it's happened. Um, and L.A. is like I love this city. It's a terrible city. Like it's um, it's it's a crime, you know, that in so many different ways, L.A. is is a crime. And yet it's electric and exciting. And we have you know, more Korean people here than any place outside of Korea. We have more Thai people here than any place outside of Thailand. We have, you know, so many like people from all over the world. And it, and it, we have all this history, even though it's a young city, we have all this like cultural history. I also feel like LA is the most American city. A lot mm-hmm. of people want to center, like say, oh, the Midwest is the real America. But I think Los Angeles is a real America because it's this melting pot of people. It's traffic and pollution and crime and celebrity and money and real estate and those are the american things that's that's america and so i I, you know i like i'm from the ozarks originally but i I really consider myself a a californian writer and a southern california writer and an la writer i i love it here but like like anything else that you love it's 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 got a lot of things you don't you know yeah yeah um, what sort of advice do you give to writers who want to write crime fiction? Well, you know, I think other than, like I said, I, I really believe you, if you want to write crime fiction, it better be because you love crime fiction and that, that, that there's something inside you that is driving you to write it. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a great way to like tell these incredibly pulpy stories with human cores. I think that noir in particular, um, which you can't write noir with totally sympathetic characters, right? You, you have to kind of explore the worst sides of yourself. And, and I think that that's great freedom for people. Um, 
and you have to be willing to like look at violence and 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 not keep it take it cheaply I would always you know I got great advice on my first novel of like never kill somebody without a name basically like don't have you know like action novels or novels where you, somebody gets shot in the head and you don't know their name they're just some thug but like try not to ever do that try and have the violence matter and uh, so I think that's really important like I said filling the tank and educating yourself not just about novels but film and and um music and like I also I didn't mention this earlier but like crime fiction as told through hip-hop was a big influence on me uh, the, I was the right age to encounter a lot of crime stories through yeah. gangster rap and things like that and and you know taking that in and making a part of it but like I just really think that there's a book inside you that you know what it is and that's the book you have to write that's not specific to crime fiction that's just specific to any kind of storytelling is, is that you have to listen to y- the you inside you who knows what it is. And, um, and then you have to shape it for the audience, but the most, you know, that there, that's a, it's a two-step process to me. I think there's the first, you, you have to deal with yourself and your subconscious and, and telling the story that you want to tell. And then you have to figure out how to get that story from your brain into another brain, which is rewriting and word choice and all those other things that come later. If that's not too abstract. No, that makes sense. You know, but like, what about like, how can you tell the difference between when something isn't working and when you, the writer, are bored with it? You know, like you can look at something so much and you just don't know anymore. You know what that is to me? That's when you turn it in. Hmm. I always say I never turn something in when I think it's good. I turn it in when I have done a draft and I go, I don't know if I just made this book better or not. And that's when it's time to get it off your plate. I think you have to just... I don't think there's a way around that other than, you know, putting it, if you're not giving it to someone else, you at least have to put it away. Um, And um, that sometimes can be um, a little nerve wracking to like, because you want to, you want to finish the book, but if you don't know, put it away and look at it in a month and you'll have fresh eyes and, and then you'll know. But like, uh, yeah, again, I, anything that ever feels like grind mentality, I try to shy away from. So a lot of my advice will be like, go watch a movie, <laughs> go watch a movie, like when, um, or go read a book or, you know, um, take a walk, but like, get up, walk out of the room. But, you know, when you tell writers to put it away for a month or two months or however, even a week, sometimes it can seem just such a daunting amount of time to not deal with your material because writers are very impatient, right? I mean, like we want it to be done. We want to send it out. We want it. So, but it sounds like you have the patience thing under control. But I would also say that if you put it away for a month and then a, a week later, that that is driving you crazy, then you weren't really that sick of it. And then go ahead, take it out. <laughs> like I really, the one thing I really do believe in is, is I believe very strongly in the subconscious and that we are all kind of uh, justifying after the fact what our subconsciouses want us to do. Um, and that you should just listen to that thing as often as, as possible. So I, I try not to have any rule that can't be broken by, but I really wanna. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause if you really yeah. wanna, you should. <laughs> do you have readers? Will you send early drafts out to friends or agents or whomever? I, yes, but with a caveat of not really early. I, I do write very ugly first drafts and I have to, there's literally a point where I, cause I do a lot of quick drafts. I don't, I don't do three drafts and I'm done. I do 15, 16, 17, 18 drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there's a point I will get to where I will, and I have this with everything, whether it's a script or a novel or whatever, where I will think to myself, okay, if I die, they can read this and, and, and it won't be that embarrassing. Um, and that's not when I give to somebody, I keep going. And then when I get to that place we were talking about earlier, where it's like, I don't know, I, I give it to someone. This one, um, uh, the first reader for, for everybody knows was a writer named Steph Cha, who wrote the great LA crime novel, Your House Will Pay, uh, along with some other, uh, you know, uh, great books. But um, so she was the first reader for that. But yeah, I, I really think that's very important to when you're ready to, to have people um, with no skin in the game give it a read and tell you what what they like and what they don't like and both and i want to hear both and what do you pay attention to then i mean like do you again you talked about kind of paying attention to yourself will you like read over you know the notes and go yeah that feels right that doesn't feel right or do you just go well i don't know anymore so i'm just gonna believe all of it <laughs> no well no i don't think you should believe all of it i uh i know a, a writer he's a historian named reza aslan who who said this to me and he said um the way you can tell a good note is because it's like they're telling you a secret you didn't want to admit but you already knew it was true mm -hmm. and i think that's a lot of those preliminary readers are to tell you about the rules that you were following that don't matter. We all set these little rules. Well, I don't know. I just, it would be hacky if he goes to the store before he talks to her. I don't know what that means, but you know, you just <laughs> believe that and you just, you write the entire book and, and, and you just, oh, well, that would be hacky. And then somebody goes, wouldn't it be faster if he just goes to the store before he sees her? And you go, oh yeah, of course it would. Right. And so I do think those you always listen to, you always do those. I do think there's only two kinds of notes in the world. Uh, there's the note of here's how we can make your thing better. And the other kind of note is here's how to make your thing my thing. Hmm. And that second kind of note, in my opinion, is always wrong. You could get it from the greatest writer in the world. But if they're telling you a note that would turn your book into their book, you shouldn't listen to it. That's, right. that's not the right thing to do. And so you know, you can ignore those, but I still think it's worthwhile going like, what made them give that note? And mm -hmm. is there something I can look at and change in my way and, and make it my book, but still be aware that maybe there's a soft spot there or something I didn't nail? You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's good. Yeah, the secret. I like that. I'm going to remember mm -hmm. that. Um, okay, Maddie's asking, how can people contact you or follow you? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I, I have a, um, a sub stack that I hardly ever update uh, called Welcome to the Hammer Party, where I do write about the art of writing in a very abstract and, and pseudo intellectual way. Um, I haven't really updated it in a while. Um, and then the other way, place that I tend to be is Twitter, uh, Jordan underscore Harper. Uh, and that's where I waste way too much of my time. What about social media? I mean, has it changed how you write or what you pay attention to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, there's two, there's two sides of it. There's the side where it's rotted my brain and, and killed my, um, oh, what's the word? Uh, attention span. <laughs> and, um, and that's all bad. That's all very bad. But it has also democratized communication in a way that like, I think particularly without getting into my politics, I, you know, I'm a fairly radical person who, who's, uh, learns a lot from other people 
And, you know, particularly when you're talking about like the underbelly of LA or police brutality or things like that, there's so many voices you can find on Twitter, letting you know what's going on or where homeless camps are, or, you know, what things like that to me are invaluable. And that's why uh, I find Twitter very hard to give up is, is I do get a lot of ideas from Twitter. Um, but, um, and I think I came in uh, to the last conversation at the tail end where, where this be discussed is there's also just a, a, a negativity on social media that is is letting a, a cop into your head a person just wait don't know bad dumb stupid wrong offensive all that stuff and there are offensive and not things in the world but that's not my it's just always having that fire hose of negativity aimed at your face i think can be really bad for writing you have to write from and again you can edit later but you have to write from a place of like no rules doesn't matter get it out mom and dad are dead my parents aren't dead but like you know what I mean like you you gotta you gotta believe that your parents are dead while you're writing like that's you, you know um and I think social media is is not good for that and I think it comes from both sides of the political spectrum it comes from everywhere um but uh it's just something about that that is not great for the writer's brain I think mm. Well, unless there are any other questions, I am going to thank you so much for being here. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away our spotlights so that you can, um, if I can take yours away, I don't know if I can anymore. Maybe Maddie can. But anyway, um, I don't think I can do it. Oh, yeah, wait, here I can do it. And so you can see everybody and everybody can see you and we can all thank you for um, being here and taking this time. You've been wonderful. Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, thanks everyone for having me. I'll take it easy. Thanks to all of you for loving books and for taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Baird who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you again for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Mm -hmm.